Mark chapter, chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of um, studying your word and having the word of God breathed out to us. Now, Lord, may we make the most of that and be humble before you, be teachable. And Lord, I ask specifically that you would allow me to be your mouthpiece, that you would work through my words um, to, uh, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to convict us, and to shape us according to your likeness. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, this morning, uh, the testimonies that we had from from Dennis, and just thinking about little Annalise, um, you know, a lot of times life is full of news that is not good. We would put it in the category of, of bad news. Um, no one likes to hear about bad news, but it comes in all sorts of different ways. Uh, think with me just to, uh, about maybe over the past few years or, or friends or, or things that you have experienced. Maybe your job with that company that you've worked with for over 10 years is downsizing because of the economy, and it just so happens that your job is the job that they're going to cut. That's not good news. Or maybe, as it was not too long ago, your financial portfolio was cut in half because of the way that the market and the economy turn. Or maybe um, you know, you're gathered with your friends in your, in your home, and you want to put a fire on, and it'd be kind of a nice night, and as a result of that fire, uh, the house catches fire. That's not good news. Or maybe your friend has been diagnosed with a life-changing disease, or your son or daughter has walked away from the faith. We can just go on and on talking about things that happen in life that are not good news. It's bad news. It's not what we want to hear. If you remember last week, one of the things that we emphasize about Mark's gospel is that, is that Jesus not only came as a servant, but he came as a suffering servant. And we might want to limit that suffering idea to the cross, but, but there is suffering, there is grieving going on in this text, and I want you to see it as we begin. It says, now Jesus hears some really bad news. Verse 14, now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee. Now, who was John? I mean, John was related to Jesus. They probably spent time together as kids. But at the same time, John was ministering the, 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 the word of God, and there was a, a huge revival that took place in an Old Testament context among the people. As we talked last week, maybe up to 30,000 people were coming to be baptized by John. So he was having an incredible impact on the region. As a result of that, he is arrested. This is not good news, and we all know how that news ends up, right? John ends up losing his head. Now what's interesting about that word arrested, means it's, it's literally, uh, it means to, uh, to be delivered over, to be handed over. It's also a word that is translated to betray. So think with me, even in the gospel accounts here, in Mark's account in particular, Judas went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus. Same word. The chief priests, having condemned Jesus to death, delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, delivered Jesus over to be crucified. In fact, 
The apostles, when they look back on the passion story, that's the whole week of Jesus in Jerusalem as he's going through this time of preparation and suffering and death, they refer to it as you whom... Um, well, let me, let me read it. This is Acts chapter 3, verse, verse 13. God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You delivered him over. There's this aspect of, of, of recognizing this, this, whole, this whole relationship of Jesus going into Jerusalem and dying on the cross as being his being delivered over. So John has been arrested. He's been delivered over. This is the one that Jesus describes as the greatest man ever to be born of a woman. This is the great Old Testament prophet whose ministry of preaching shook the nation of Israel and restored thousands back to God. This is the one who was crying, this voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord to make his paths straight. He is the one who's arrested. He is handed over. So the one who came to prepare the way is removed out of the way so that Jesus could enter in the way. But this was no small thing. I mean, Mark's putting that in there just to remind us, I think, not just of a time, but also of a relationship. There's a moment here where John is, is arrested, and that's the moment when Jesus is going to come on the scene in his earthly ministry. So what does it look like for Jesus to enter into his earthly ministry? I'm putting, I'm putting it this way. Mark is going to shock us with the radical way Jesus enters into his earthly ministry. This is all happening very quick as far as Mark's account is concerned, but he is, he's shocking us. This is no small event. He is coming in, and he's not kind of coming in the back door, kind of slipping in the culture, slipping in the context. Jesus comes boldly into Jerusalem, into Judea, into Galilee, and he comes in such a way that it's, I would say it's radical. It's a radical way he enters into this earthly ministry. You know, we saw last week that Jesus was the, the, the promise of the Messiah being fulfilled, he, or the Old Testament being fulfilled. He is that Messiah, that promised Messiah. At his baptism, if you remember, God the Father uh, affirms him. He is my son in whom I'm well pleased. There is an identification there. There was this um, inauguration that was taking place there. And then, of course, as he went into to, to the wilderness to be tempted, we see that he, he faced the devil, and he faced the devil in such a way that, that he suffered, but he endured, and he was successful. He proved himself to be the very Son of God. Now, Jesus enters into ministry, as I said, not in a behind-the-scenes way, but in a radical way. He comes with a, a radical message. He comes with a radical call, and he comes expecting a radical response. Let's first of all look at this section, verses 14 and 15, what I'm calling a radical message. He comes preaching a radical message. I mean, right out of the stalls, boom, here he is. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This word proclaiming, it's the same word that is translated in many places, preaching. It's the word Caruso in the Greek, which means to herald. So the idea here is as, as a herald will come into town, he would come shaking his bell saying, Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, I've got an announcement to make. It's not just kind of like, I want to tell you something in secret. No, this is someone who's proclaiming. Now see, with all the microphones and stuff we have today, we don't appreciate that much. But as, as a pastor training for ministry, I had to learn how to project if I was in a place where I didn't have a microphone. And you think about some of the old preachers of years gone by, that's what they did, and, and auditoriums were, were built in such a way that, that, that the sound could actually be dispersed. Here comes Jesus, though, and he is proclaiming this gospel. 
So John had come, if you notice, he was also coming proclaiming in the wilderness. He was a faithful preacher. He was a, a powerful preacher. He didn't hold back the truth, and he spoke the truth in context that we would be like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to say that, in front of leadership, with the potential of his life being taken. But now Jesus comes in the very same way as another one of God's prophets. He comes proclaiming. He comes heralding. So it's important for us to recognize that preaching didn't begin with Jesus. Preaching actually began, we would say, I would argue, with Moses. But there's this long line of preachers throughout the Old Testament going through the Gospels, including Jesus, then the apostles, and ultimately through pastors and pastors and pastors through the years. And in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy. He basically says, preaching is the job of the pastor teacher. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. You might want to turn there. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, always be ready to preach. But your job is to preach the word. It says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And that teaching dynamic there is, is the ability to connect the dots between here's what God says, here's what his truth says, here's how you're living, let me show you how they connect. And then it goes on and says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So preaching and sound teaching that, that reproves, that rebukes and exhorts is the responsibility of the pastor. The idea of reproving means to correct, to show people that they are wrong. To rebuke means to tell people to stop what they're doing in their living in sin. And then to exhort means to encourage them with the word of God. So, so preaching encompasses all of that. Hey, this is wrong. You need to stop that. But let me show you what God says. They all go together here. And let me connect what you're experiencing and what God says. Let me connect them together in such a way that you understand. And so this is what we find Jesus coming to do. Just think about it. Jesus comes correcting. He comes and he, he shows the religious leaders. He shows the disciples. And ultimately, he shows the Jews how they are wrong in their thinking. But he also comes rebuking, telling them to stop living in sin, to repent, and then to turn to God. And then he comes encouraging, giving them the hope that can only be found through embracing him as Lord and Savior. So he is, he is following the, the paradigm of what it means to be a preacher of the word of God. And friends, this is really, really important. Because it's worth noting at the outset of Mark's gospel, the first and foremost uh, reality about Jesus and his earthly ministry is that he is a preacher and he's a teacher. Some would say that Mark's gospel is more about focusing on the deeds of Jesus and not his teaching or preaching. But a closer look will reveal that Mark uh, reveals first throughout the, his gospel that Jesus is a faithful preacher and teacher. In fact, the, 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 this whole section in chapter 1 is really just kind of a, a, a picture of the life and ministry of Jesus. And he is teaching, 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 preaching, preaching, preaching. And he does some other things along the way. But it's what's central to all of that is his desire to preach. Now, our society doesn't necessarily like the fact or consider the fact that Jesus is a preacher. They'll, they'll tolerate Jesus, Jesus as, a, as a doer of good, good deeds, and a, a doer of good works, someone who's compassionate, someone who's kind. They like that, but I don't want to listen to a Jesus that comes preaching, unless, of course, he's preaching, saying something that I want him to say for my benefit. But hear what we find in Mark's gospel. Look at chapter 1 and verse 38 and 39. 
And he said to the disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may, what? Preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So you see, he does. He's casting out demons. He's healing. He's, he's helping people. But he's primarily going to preach. He's try, primarily going to rebuke and to reveal and to encourage with the gospel. Now to those then who question Jesus as a preacher, to them his preaching is always secondary but we just read, this is why he has come out. And so, friends, it's really important that we recognize that Jesus has this primary role of being a preacher, a proclaimer, a heralder, an announcer of good news. Now, there's two ways this happens. First of all, there is uh, a, a, a general uh, announcement, a general announcement. He says, I come preaching the gospel of God. The good news of God. So in the context of bad news, Jesus comes proclaiming what? Good news. Now this isn't just Jesus' good news. This is the good news that has come from the heart of the Godhead. And the significance of the good news is that Jesus is the one who makes it good. Now when a herald would go into town and he was going to communicate some information about an emperor either being born or an emperor ascending to the throne, um, he didn't share that as bad news. The word euangelion begins with this understanding of this proclamation of these emperors, and, and of course the Christians embraced that and, and used that as a means by which to identify the real king is coming. But this, this herald didn't come with some kind of a humdrum drivel of information. No, he spoke with joy. He spoke with authority. I have news for you. An emperor has been born. Everyone hear this. Everyone pay attention. Everyone stop what you're doing. An emperor has ascended to the throne. That's a herald. So when Jesus comes, he's coming heralding that good news. People stop. People listen. People take in the reality of this. But this is what he has come to do. So this is the, the 30,000 feet, or you might say the, 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 feet from, or the, the view from the heavens looking down. This is the big picture of this announcement. There is good news, and it comes through Jesus, and it comes from God, but there's also a specific announcement, and it's a specific announcement in particular about the kingdom. This time is right. The kingdom of God is at hand. So he's speaking here about this radical announcement about the kingdom, and Jesus uses this word repeatedly to really encompass everything that he was doing at this particular point in time. It's a word that's used 15 times in Mark's gospel. Now, um, Luke uses it 40-something times. Matthew uses it 50-something times. But what is the kingdom? What does Jesus mean by saying the kingdom of God is at hand? What is he identifying? We, we tend to associate kingdom uh, with geography, don't we? I mean, think of the United Kingdom, right? That's England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. They're, they're all united together with one monarch. But from, from, the, from a scriptural perspective, from a biblical perspective, a, a kingdom is, is more of an activity. It's where God reigns. It's where he reigns over his people. And so, so here we have this idea that Jesus is announcing this kingdom is at hand. The reign of God, in particular, on the earth is now ready to be ushered in. And Israel had an understanding of this kingdom idea. And if you've been with us over the past couple of years, you'll know from First and Second Samuel that there is this need for a kingdom, but there needed to be a king. And so you have to have a king, you have to have a people, and you have to have them a, a realm where that king is overseeing. And, and the Israelites were waiting for that kingdom to be established. They understood that in God's kingdom, the enemies of God were going to be vanquished, all evil would be destroyed. 
The people of God would be exalted and installed in power, that all sickness would be removed, there'd be no more mourning, no more grieving, no more pain. It is this kingdom that Jesus now says is at hand. At his baptism, God was publicly installing his son as king in his kingdom. And just like Psalm 2 pointed to, that the nations would bow down and kiss the son because he's king. And so now Jesus arrives as king. And he will spend his earthly ministry teaching and showing how the kingdom that the people and the religious elite were anticipating is actually quite different than what they think it really is. See, they were looking for an earthly king to overthrow Rome. God was establishing an eternal king who would overthrow sin. Two different kingdoms, two different purposes, two different ideas. And that's why Jesus often begins his teaching with the words, the kingdom of God is what? Like. And then he gives a parable, or he gives a story, or he shares a truth. Because he's wanting his audience to have a better understanding of what the kingdom is actually like. So it's, a, it's, a, it's good news specifically about the kingdom, but it's also good news about responding to the kingdom. Jesus' preaching demands a response. The purpose of preaching is not just to declare information. The purpose of this preaching is to demand a response. And so he says here, repent and believe. That's the purpose. If the kingdom of God has come near and the king himself is already present, then my life, all of my life must change. The old life of indifference to God and his will must be abandoned. It must be replaced by loyalty to that king. And how is it that man moves from indifference to loyalty? How is it that, that, that women move from rebellion to, sub, to submission or, or men move from being an enemy to a loyal subject of the king? And the answer is to repent and to believe the gospel. So Jesus is saying to all of us, turn from your sinful lifestyle. And in light of my presence, live in a way that will please God. He's calling all who hear his proclamation to abandon their self-centered manner of life and live the new life of being a subject of the king. But repentance cannot stand alone. It must be accompanied by faith. And that's why you find repentance and faith together here. We must turn away from our sin, but also turn to God. Both are absolutely necessary to turn to God in belief and faith. Belief that submission to him is the best and the only hope that we have. In other words, we turn to him as our Lord as well as our Savior. See, Jesus is Lord whether you like it or not. The question is, are you willing to turn to him and submit to him as Lord? Because that's who he is. And that is a, that is a reality of conversion. That is not secondary to it. That is what happens at conversion. This is a radical message, friends. He comes and he's preaching it. And he demands a response. But he also comes issuing a radical call. A radical call. The king has come to gather people into his kingdom, and he now gives us a picture of what it looks like when people repent and believe the good news. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. In verse 20, we also read that Jesus called James and John. So these expressions, follow me and called, are not gentle suggestions. Jesus didn't come to them and say, um, I want you to think about something, um, but back in a little bit, you might want to talk with your parents about it, that kind of stuff. That's not what happened. He comes up and he says, follow me. 
And then it tells us that he called them. This is an authoritative command to be obeyed. The question is whether or not the person hearing the call, hearing the gospel, hearing the news will respond by belief and repentance and will follow. In my home, usually around 5.30 or 6 o'clock, I find myself standing in the foyer of my house yelling up to everyone else in the home, Dinner is ready! You know what I'm talking about, right? And you know, if they don't come, guess what? If there's no food left over, it's cereal. I'm calling. The question is, will you respond? There's an announcement. You can choose to listen or not listen. And you will have to live with the consequences. So another question is, whom does Jesus call? And I think this is really interesting, isn't it? He calls simple fishermen. Now, in today's world, this is not the group of people that you would think would shake the world. Fishermen. In fact, many of the people that Jesus interacted with were not the elites. They were the run of the mill. A lot of his illustrations, a lot of his parables, a lot of his stories have to do with just average run-of-the-mill people because that's what most of us are. Sorry if that isn't good news for you, but we're just average people. Now notice, there's Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Of course, Simon in this passage was actually the man, uh, the disciple that we know um, today as Peter because the Lord changed his name. He's the one that Mark is likely getting most of his material from. Now, according to John's Gospel, this was not the first time these guys had interacted with Jesus or heard from Jesus. They must have heard him preach some sermons already before, and so this prepared them. They were already having heard that. They were ready to respond. So I think that Mark wants his readers to see that Jesus has, come to call, has not come to call some kind of elite group of people to follow him, but the normal run-of-the-mill person, simple, rough, hard-working, relatively poor, um, sinful fishermen. And we can relate to that. We can understand that because we can certainly see ourselves there. Now, friends, we also, though, must silence quickly the idea that we must somehow be good enough before Jesus will call us. It wasn't like Peter, Andrew, James, and John were over in their ships saying, okay, I've got to somehow you know, mend these nets better because I want Jesus to be impressed. You see, we, we, don't, we don't need to somehow get our act together. If you can get your act together, you don't need Jesus. But let me tell you something. You can't get your act together. You are in bondage to your own sin. You're bowing down to idols that maybe you've had for years. And you, to break the power of sin, need Jesus. You can't get your act together. He is your only hope. Friends, there's only two kinds of sinners. There's the unsophisticated, unrefined, like these fishermen. And there's the sophisticated and refined, like many of us here. They both have something in common. They're all sinners, and they all stand in judgment because of their sin. They're both destined for destruction. They are both in rebellion to God, and both are headed for hell and in need of the same gospel. That's the group that he comes to. Now, to what does Jesus call them? To what? This is where the bulk of the the verse and the data here is pointing us to. Now, there's a reality, friends, that if you're a Christian, you have been called. There really are only two callings in Scripture. One calling is to be an apostle. And as I'm looking around today, I don't, I don't see any in here at all. The other calling, though, is to be a Christian. 
The calling there is what's called the effectual call. The calling to become a child of God. God draws you. He calls you to himself. He breathes life into you. There's a conversion. There's regeneration that happens as a result of your response to that gospel call. But unfortunately, the idea of calling has morphed over time. The word vocation is a word we use to describe our occupation. But the reality is that that word vocation comes from the Latin word vocar, which means to call. And that is important because your calling then and your occupation are actually two different things. Consider this. The medieval church said the only ones who have a calling are the clergy. They are the only ones who have an an irrevocable call to follow Jesus. So it's not surprising that they saw themselves as an elitist group. But with the Reformation, things turned back to what Scripture teaches, and they said, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, and that we believe that all believers are called, which makes sense because that's what Scripture actually teaches. The problem is, over time, the modern church now says that it is our occupation that is our calling. See, these words have kind of all blended together. So people say, God has called me to be a banker, a social worker, a marine, a teacher, a computer engineer, a pest control agent. But these are all occupations. They're not your calling. These occupations are actually all giftings through which God allows us then to live out our calling to be Christians. So so hear this. Here's the point, right? We are called to be Christians. As Christians, we live out our calling, our vocation, through an occupation. And that occupation is a gifting that God has given us so that our calling can be lived out in this world. And the distinction we need to make here is that if you're a child of God, you are called. Your calling is to live for him. That's your calling. Whatever occupation you have, that's your calling. So how do you determine your gifting then that flows out of this calling? Well, you consider all the wisdom resources that God has given you. Let me rattle off a few that are pretty obvious. Going to God in prayer and asking for wisdom. It's a pretty good thing to do, wouldn't you say? Spending time in God's word, looking for wisdom and insight. Listening to the counsel of people who love you, family and friends. Remember I told you earlier? Everyone gives counsel. What kind of counsel are you giving? So go to people that you trust. Go to people that you respect to find out counsel for maybe what what occupation you should be pursuing. Seek counsel from your church family. Maybe people. Maybe it's someone in leadership. Maybe it's a Bible study leader or someone like that. Maybe it's a brother in Christ who who can help you or a sister in Christ who who has known you for a while. Ask people you have worked for for insight, for advice. Test out opportunities to see whether you like it or not. I mean, how many, how many young people go off to college and they, they have already determined their major? And then one year into their major, they're like, uh, I think I'm just going to go with humanities because I have no clue what I'm going to do, right? I, this is, this is yes, yeah, sometimes you have to test things out. Consider what you love to do. Now, there's a novel thought that God would actually want you, allow you even, to do what you love to do. What a gracious God. Why is it we think that our occupation always has to be something we don't like to do? Now, the reality is, by the way, all these things need to be fashioned by Holy Spirit discernment, by the Word of God, and, and we need to be careful that we're not tainting all of this with our own sinful desires. But there's just a few things here just to help us with our gifting. But but hear this. 
Many times your occupation will be the result of need, not the result of what you love to do. Earning a living and putting food on the table and clothes on the back of your children become a priority rather than being in a job you love. But wherever God places you, whatever your occupation is, that is now the vehicle and the arena for your calling, for your vocation to be fleshed out. You're called to be a Christian first. And so if you're a Christian banker, that banking industry is the means by which God is calling you to live out your life as a Christian. Many of you know that for a season in my life, I had to step away from full-time pastoral ministry, and I, I had the hardest time finding work. No one wanted to hire a pastor. Well, what was he going to do? You know, He's just going to walk around the whole place and share the gospel with people and pray and all that kind of stuff. Ugh, stay away, right? Until finally there was an opportunity through a friend, family member, uh, to work at FedEx. And so um, I found myself in the context, uh, very foreign to me, getting up at 2 in the morning and getting to FedEx at 2.30 in the morning and rubbing shoulders with, with husky 20-year-olds who... Um, who were having fun and at the same time were lazy and here I was trying to do my job and do it hard and to, to, to develop some kind of an ethic. And Yet I found that in the context even of working at FedEx that God was sticking me in this container with another guy for three hours. And you start talking and conversations go different directions and God gave me in the context of a container opportunities to testify about the goodness of God, about the clarity of the gospel, about the, the assurance that the word of God is the word of God. And people had all sorts of arguments, but I would, I would challenge them back as we're, you know, here's, you know, let me get this box here. Yeah, well, you know what Jesus says here, you know, you know, a few grunts and stuff in the middle of it. But there I was as a child of God in an occupation living out that calling. Now, now I'm back in full-time ministry. I'm a, I'm a pastor teacher in the context of a church, and there's part of me that wishes I could be back in a container every once in a while. A little part of me, okay? <laughs> because there's, there's a part of that dynamic that as, as a pastor, it's harder to kind of get into those realms. So FedEx wasn't my calling, but it was my occupation for a season, but was the vehicle for my calling to be fleshed out. Now, I spent a lot of time on that because Jesus comes and he's calling you, he's calling you into the body of Christ, into the kingdom. This is a, a conversion calling. The call for discipleship is not a next stage. It is a, it is a call into the, the kingdom, into a relationship with Christ. So first of all, he's calling them to follow. He's calling them to follow. Here we see Jesus as our leader. It's a call to discipleship, which is a call to recognize Jesus as your Lord and Master, to walk with him, to sit with him, to learn from him, to discuss life with him, to be corrected by him. We see him doing all that stuff with his disciples. Now, if you were just out of high school and Stephen Curry called you or Mark Zuckerberg called you or Mike Pence called you and said, hey, I want you to come and spend the next six months with me. I'll take you to every meeting, allow you to ask any question along the way. I'll pay for it all. I will even give you a salary for being there because I want to invest in you. Would you go? I mean, if it was Steph Curry, he would be saying, you can sit on the bench for every game. You can listen in all the huddles and the team meetings. I'll teach you all that I no, and all that it means to be a professional basketball player. If it's Mark Zuckerberg, or leader of Facebook, he says, you know, you can sit on all the board meetings, hear all the news ideas that we're all working on, spend time with research and development, and always have the opportunity to sit down with me and talk. Would you do it? What if Mike Pence, our vice president, said that to you? You can sit in the Oval Office listening to Donald Trump <laughs> for six months, <laughs> listening to people from the other party for six months, 
hearing all the squabbles, hearing the nonsense. At the same time, figuring out what it means to lead a country and how difficult that is. If you had that opportunity, regardless of your political persuasion, you'd be a fool not to do it. Why? Because it's an opportunity to learn. And they called you up and said, come, come do it. I'm there. Now hear this. The call of Jesus, however, doesn't even compare to what those guys have to offer. Jesus is calling you, he's calling me into the kingdom where he rules, where he reigns supremely, powerfully, with all authority. And this calling is not just to get you into the kingdom. This is a calling to live life as a disciple in his kingdom. Every believer is called by Christ to be his disciple. The question is this, what kind of disciple are you? Obedient, faithful, disobedient, unfaithful, somewhere in between. He's calling us to follow him. But then he's also calling us to fish. He says, I'll make you fishers of men. At my ordination, this passage actually was something that, that I was thinking about. An ordination is, the, is that time in past, pastoral life where you are officially um, identified by a group of other brothers and a church and saying, we believe that you've been called for ministry. We're affirming you. We're, we're praying for you. We're blessing you. And, and it's a commissioning service and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember meditating on this passage And I was struck by what Jesus says. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And I just repeated over and over and over again, and finally it clicked, and it became a great relief to me, because Jesus says, you follow me, and then he says, and I will make you become fishers of men. There's a little little inference there, a little emphasis here on the word I. Those four little words make all the difference. I will make you. You. You see, it taught me that Christ is both our leader and he is also our equipper. He says, you follow me, I'll lead you, but I'll also make you to become a fisher of men. In other words, becoming a fisher of men was God doing something in me. In other words, it was my responsibility to follow It was his promise to make me become a fisher of men. It's a small little nuance, but a very important one. Now, this isn't simply say, be a passive disciple, just kind of sit back and say, well, God's called me, and then he's somehow going to kind of move me around, and I'm going to be a fisher of men. Hey, over there, I want to talk to you, you know, that kind of thing. No, he expects for us as a disciple to actually exercise and be obedient with the things that he is teaching us and he's equipping us with. But he is the one who is actually the power behind us being fishers of men. So we're called to follow and we're called to fish. We're called to be fishers of men. But what does that mean? How do we become fishers of men? Well, it's a call for gospel ministry and service. It's, a, it's saying that Jesus will teach us how and where we can fit into the body of Christ so that we're all part of being fishers of men. Part of the, part of the, 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 the purpose of a church is that the church would have an impact wherever it is. The church would, would strengthen itself because of the, 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 the gifts and the... And, and, and the, the um, the ministry that takes place within the body, but that church is also looking out and it's reaching out and it's seeking to, to, to present the gospel to people. Now, we don't stiff-arm people into the gospel. We don't stiff-arm people into the church. You, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? I mean, if, I, if I'm, if I'm you know, trying to rope you into the church, I've got to keep that rope so you'll stay in the church. Right? True fishing in this context is simply sharing the truth of the gospel, and God doing the work. But I have a responsibility to be faithful. And God will do his work as I am faithful. And so, friends, this is a radical call. We are all 
as individual disciples called to be fishers of men. We're all responsible and commanded to grow in our evangelistic ministry. But we're also all called to work together, to serve in different areas so that fishing for men can go on through the church. So it's a radical call that goes out. So Jesus comes preaching a radical message. He comes issuing a radical call. Third, Jesus comes expecting a radical response. Now, there are many in the visible body of Christ that claim to be Christians, but who are not. They've heard the good news of the gospel before. They've sat under faithful preaching week by week, but their response to the gospel has fallen short. Here's what I'm talking about. Um, just think about vocabulary. You can say all the right words. You know Christian vocabulary. It's gospel-centered this. It's gospel-centered that, right? Or brother and sister, how you doing? And, um, hey, I'm born again. This is a word-based church. You know, grace. You know, you know the words. And people can catch up on the vocabulary. And they can, they can kind of learn the vocabulary and get along fine. And yet, just simply knowing the vocabulary does not make you a disciple of Christ. Or that there's, a, secondly, this conformity. You can conform to the, the Christian cultural norms around you. In other words, the style of clothing that you wear, the attitudes you might have about things like alcohol and tobacco and drugs or just all sorts of different things that might come down the pike. Without putting any weight on that, it, the idea is that there's certain norms in certain circles. And so you're like, okay, these people don't, these people do, or right? I'm comfortable with that. Or maybe there's common likes or dislikes. And then there's heritage. So vocabulary, conformity, heritage. In other words, the, the godliness of your parents or, or family members. I remember when I was ministering in the South, I was still in college, and we would go and we would share the gospel with people. I met so many people who had an uncle or an aunt or a grandfather who was pastoring a church somewhere. Almost every family had a pastor in it. And so people are just like, well, you know, he's a pastor, you know, so I guess that gets me in. That doesn't get you in. Not at all. And I don't even know if that pastor's in. And I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just saying the reality is you, you enter the kingdom of God God's way. There's a radical message. There's a, a radical call. And there's a radical response that Jesus is expecting of those who hear that call. All these I've mentioned here fall short. They fail to follow Christ. They fail to become fishers of men. But the response we see from these four, these four future disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, is, is a paradigm for all genuine believers to follow. Notice what it says, verse 18. It says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, uh, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So what makes their response so radical? There's three things. Number one, Jesus expects an immediate response. Their response was immediately. It says immediately they left their nets. As I mentioned earlier, they had already had time to consider the good news, but when Jesus came to call them, they were ready to respond. There was no hesitation. My friends, God may be squeezing you with his gospel, and you may be wrestling with it. You might be shaking a little bit in your heart and saying, I don't know if this is what I want to do. But God is saying, listen to me. Here's the call. It's good news. You had bad news all your life. Now I have good news for you. Will you listen? Will you hear? And God is patient, but you may run out of time. The gospel announcement and the gospel call demand an urgent response, an immediate response. Secondly, it's not only immediate, but it is also complete. It is complete. They left their nets. They left their livelihood. 
They left their families to follow Jesus. They were willing to forsake anything that would impede them from following and obeying Christ. Now the reality is, Christ is not saying to all of us in here, come follow me, abandon your jobs, abandon your family, abandon... He's not saying that. There's a a wisdom that's brought into this uh, for, for the future generations. This was a unique situation where Jesus was calling his disciples to come with him and to come learn from him. And they left immediately, but they also came and they responded completely. So, so he's not saying stop working for that company or stop attending that school or, or stop enjoying the hobby that you have or, or stop pursuing that friendship. In fact, he might want you to stay there for gospel reasons. But this complete response is a sacrificial response, and it's pushing a disciple of Christ to ask the questions, what is impeding me with my walk with Christ? Ah, so now the question is, if my job, if my friendships, if my hobbies now are interfering with me following Christ, then maybe I need to drop them like they drop their net so I can follow him freely and completely. What is hindering me from following in a way that pleases God? What is holding me back from fishing for men? So we must be be willing to make radical decisions that are Christ-centered decisions that are saying, this is impeding me, therefore I'm going to have to remove it. I'm going to have to cut it off. I'm going to have to change. Now we find a picture of this in the Old Testament. Turn, if you would, please, to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. And here we have the story of Elijah who's coming to recruit Elisha to be his prophet. And notice in verses 19 through 21 what happens. So he, that's Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, which was, which was a, a formal way of a prophet saying, I am, I am calling you to be my, 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 my disciple, so to speak, to follow in my footsteps. So there was, there was something very important happening there, and Elisha understood it. Verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran with Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. This was not saying, oh, I'm not going to do it. This is, he's saying, I'm going to do it. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? This is Eli- uh, Elijah speaking to Elisha there. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yoke of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted assisted him. So in a very vivid fashion, Elisha is so serious about following the prophet Elijah that he slaughters as a sacrifice the very oxen that was part of his livelihood. And the yoke that was put between the oxen made of wood, he used to set fire for the altar. In essence, what Elisha was doing was burning his bridges with joy so that he could follow the prophet of Elijah. And some of us need to take an honest look at our lives and ask the questions. Are there some relationship bridges that we need to burn for the sake of following Christ? Are there some practices or habits that need to be burned for the the sake of of walking with Christ? Are there some places that I need to avoid that will be a hindrance from my pursuit of Christ? See, responding to the call is a radical thing. It means following Christ immediately, completely, but also following Christ in this way. It's an ongoing response. You see, it says, and they followed him. The purpose of following Jesus is not simply to get a train ticket into the kingdom. No, discipleship is an ongoing activity and an attitude of following and fishing. Discipleship is a lifelong pursuit of Christ, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit 
of godliness, the pursuit of growing and changing and becoming complete in Christ. So friends, this is a radical message with a radical call that is demanding a radical response. And I want to finish by asking two very penetrating questions. Question number one, are you a follower of Christ? Now, at face value, that question might feel a little insulting. Why would you be asking a, a question like that, Pastor Rod? I've been coming to church for quite a while. You should know that I'm a follower of Christ. Well, the reality is that, that there are too many people who attend church, who enjoy being part of the community, who like having friends who are kind and, and decent human beings, but have never bowed the knee to Christ. I mean, how horrible would it be to, to live your life in the context of a church, but actually never truly be a disciple of Christ? And how awful would it be if I, as your pastor, would never challenge you about that situation? Because I just assumed out of kindness that you were. Sadly, in the recent history of the church in America, there's been a plague of easy believism where watered-down gospel has been presented to people People are asked um, to respond. There isn't a call for radical change. There isn't a call for a radical gospel. There's no call for repentance or, or saving faith. It's just simply adding Jesus to your life. And friends, that's not this radical call at all. So people continue to live like the world, that they're thinking they are in the kingdom when they're not. You know, my son has been a Marine for the past five years or so, and it got me thinking a little bit about, there's some cool things about being a Marine. Or maybe say about just being in the military in general. But I'm thinking about the Marines in particular. Some people want to join the Marines because they want to wear that awesome blue uniform and have that shiny sword unique to the armed forces that they can wear alongside that. They want to be able to drive down the road with a bumper sticker that says, Semper Fi, and actually know what it means. They want to be a Marine. But they don't want to go to boot camp. They don't actually want to train with any weapons. They don't want to be assigned a job. They certainly don't want to go to war. What they want is the benefits of being a Marine without the cost. And if we offer a watered-down gospel, we're offering the benefits of the gospel without the cost. And we're saying there's no cost to you, but we see in this passage, there is a cost to a disciple. That disciple has to radically answer that call. Too many people want the privileges of being a follower of Christ without actually following Christ. And friends, this text is screaming at us to stop playing games with the gospel. Jesus comes with a radical announcement that demands a radical response. It's a life-changing response. It's a response that embraces Christ, and your life will never be the same again. Now just ask the men who were these fishermen. Unfortunately, James was martyred in AD 44 by Herod. Simon, who later became Peter, would end up being the apostle in Rome. Andrew would take the gospel to the lands of modern-day Russia. John would end up being the bishop of Ephesus. No longer fishermen, in the sense of fishing for fish, but now men greatly used to fish for men. Are you a follower of Christ? Secondly, do you go fishing for men? You say, Pastor Rod, why did you have to bring that up? Ouch, that hurts. Now, I've done some fishing in my time, especially when I lived in England. Uh, we didn't call it fishing. That's what you do on a boat. We call it angling. Totally different thing. If you are a fisherman, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's a, there's a, there's a prestige to that. I'm not a fisherman. I'm an angler, right? I have no idea about the truth of that. Now, we may all know about fishing, but do we actually fish 
See, there's fly fishing, there's float fishing, there's spinning, there's deep sea fishing, there's ice fishing, which makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> I mean, we live here in California. Praise God for that. Th- th- there's no joy in sitting on an upside-down five-gallon bucket in the cold for nine hours. Makes no sense to me. But people do it. You may enjoy spending time at Bass Pro Shop or Cabela's. You may have a boat, a a depth gauge or a a fish scanner, which kind of takes the fun out of it all. And maybe 14 fishing poles with all sorts of different reels. You may have books, you may have video, you may have magazines. But do you actually go fishing? You get the picture here. It's a good thing to know about fishing for men. In fact, it's, it's good to read up on it. It's good to, to have a good Bible knowledge. It's good to, to, to be prepared and to be equipped. But the point of all of that is so that we can go fishing for men. So how do we do that? Let me just give you three final thoughts. This is a very simple end to our time here this morning. How can I fish for men? Number one, Remember that you're not alone in your feelings of inadequacy. I mean, how many people in this room are just so confident when they open their mouth and share the gospel? How many more would be be like, uh, all right, I have hesitation? Be honest with that? Yeah, I think most of us do, okay? It's intimidating, it's hard, and and we, we need to recognize that you're in good company. We all struggle with it, and that's why we need to remember it's not what we do, it's God working through our obedience, Secondly, I want to suggest to you that you begin with your home, that you make your home a platform for ministry. So that means that the ministry of hospitality is something you hold up as being important in an evangelistic endeavor to reach other people. You welcome people into your home. People will sit down and have a cup of coffee with you. They'll have some pie with you. They'll sit out on the the deck and have some barbecue with you. Your home can be a place for ministry to take place. It's a vehicle for fishing. Thirdly, view your lifestyle, I mean your home, your work, the school, the gym, the golf course, whatever it might be, as your Moral proximity. In other words, this is the arena where God has given me a spiritual responsibility to exercise this fishing for men. So don't be thinking about, I have to go over here to fish for men. I have to go over there to... Listen, there's a moral proximity he has already given you. So you go to work, and you have a co-worker who you naturally have a relationship with, and they start asking questions, you share the gospel. I'm not talking about walking into, walking into Apple or something like that, and you have your lunchbox, and it has John 3.16 on one side, and on the other side it says, repent. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just allowing the natural course of life to be the arena where God is saying, you are responsible in this context to live out your calling to be a fisher of men. And do it naturally. And do it joyfully. And do it such a way that, that the, the discussions about the gospel flow out of your life and you're, you're willing to share what God has been doing and, and how you went through that tough time. What, what Dennis shared this morning for us is an example of that. Going through deep trial, deep sorrow, and yet this is what God has done to sustain me. All of us can, can, can weave things in there naturally as we have these relationships, the problem is we've kind of put our blinders on. You know, we have this unbeliever kind of, kind of alert. It's like, unbeliever to the left, unbeliever to the left, stay away, keep focused. As opposed to saying, all right, Lord, I, I don't know this person. I have no idea how to create a conversation, but I'm just going to trust you. And you never, you never know what's, what's going to happen because you're just saying, Lord, this is, this is my moral proximity. I want to do this for your glory. So see your moral proximity as God's mission field. Pray for opportunities to arise. Prepare yourself by growing in your ability to be ready with an answer of the hope that is in you. And then trust God. He is the one who's orchestrating your life. To be sure, he can orchestrate a messy, sinful, struggling person who wants to share the gospel to bring about the good news in someone else's life. He's a great God. He works in mysterious ways, even through us. He's called us 
with a radical message, a radical call to respond in a radical way by embracing all of that and to live for him, to be followers and fishers of men. Lord, help us today to consider your kindness, your goodness, but Lord, your call. We are humbled that you would come so powerfully to change us, to shape us, to call us into a relationship with you as a disciple. Lord, if there's something in what I've said today that is resonating the heart of someone here this morning, Lord, I ask that you would seal it, that you would allow them to talk with a, a friend or an acquaintance that is here and to work through that. Maybe it's a, a decision to follow Christ, to, to embrace him as Lord and Savior. Maybe it's, it's just a, a husband and wife getting together and talking about how we're we gonna use our home as a platform for ministry. What does that look like? And just beginning those thoughts, Lord, help us to see how powerful this gospel is and how radical it is, Lord, how it changes lives. And Lord, help us to realize that we are the result of that radical call. We have been brought into your kingdom. And Lord, you've used so many things to do that. So Lord, we commit this to you. We ask, Lord, that you would allow us now to live out of what we've heard this morning. For your, your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.